Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today we'll be talking with Holly Welker, editor of Revising Eternity, 27 Latter-day Saint Men Reflect on Modern Relationships. How are you doing today, Holly? I'm doing really well. How are you? Great. Now, how were these essays selected? Uh, Well, I asked just about every single man I knew who was or had been Mormon to consider writing an essay for me about their relationships. And, um, oh, probably 35 to 40 said they would give it a shot. And um, the 27 who are in the collection are those who persevered to the end with me in terms of writing an essay that um, was finished and polished and would make sense to strangers, people who did not already know their story. Tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Um. I grew up Mormon in uh, rural Arizona, a little community called Thatcher in the southeast corner of Arizona. Um, People of a certain age might recognize the name. It was Spencer W. Kimball's hometown, and he talked about it a lot when he was president of the church. Um, So, I mean, Mormonism... Is, was a very big part of my life. I quit going to church in my 20s, but I still remained interested in the culture that had produced me. And then in 2008, I moved to Salt Lake City, uh, right as Proposition 8 was um, an issue, Proposition 8 in California, which would... Um, amend California's constitution to outlaw gay marriage. This was something I personally was opposed to. I was a strong advocate of uh, 
gay marriage. And um, I absorbed for the first time that um, ideas about marriage in Utah were a bit skewed compared to what I'd grown up with in Arizona. Then to top it off, in March of 2010, my mother died six months before my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And um, I love my father. He is a good man who does not have a cruel or malicious bone in his body, but he is a, a, a difficult person. He, he, is, he is odd. And my mother was a force of nature. And when, when she was gone um, and no longer just this huge force that shaped our lives, I started to get an understanding of how difficult it must have been to be married to my father. <laughs> and I started wondering what her life was like. Um, you know, I had, I had quit going to church more than 20 years earlier, and there were things about her life I didn't understand and couldn't ask her. And so I started asking all my friends to write about Mormon marriage. So before I did Revising Eternity, I did a book called Bearing Witness, 36 Mormon Women Talk Candidly About Love, Sex, and Marriage. And um, it was really a labor of love, um, very meaningful for me. But even before it ended, even before the book was in print, I started thinking about how it was only one very small aspect of the conversation and that um, a, a logical next step in this larger conversation about um, Mormonism and marriage and love and sex would be to get a male perspective. Luckily, that book did well enough that the publisher, the University of Illinois Press, which is a longstanding presence in Mormon studies, agreed to let me do a follow-up. And so that was Revising Eternity. And it took six years. It took a very long time. <laughs> well, we, we're glad that you have this uh, book. Tell us about Mormon masculinity. How has that term changed over time? Well, that is a really good question, and one I am not entirely sure I am qualified to answer, but I'll give it a go. Um, one thing I would say, so in, in the 19th century, Mormon masculinity, uh, one, one aspect of that was the idea that men... Um, had, could have more than one wife. There is the element of polygamy there. Um, another is that men would be masters of their dominion um, expressed as broadly as possible. Um, this, this goes back to section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which talks about um, the, the sort of life men could aspire to in 
the hereafter um, and that um, they could have, for instance, multiple wives and extended families in order to achieve an astonishing degree of glorification. And of course, that doesn't really exist in the 21st century. There is a modesty to what contemporary Mormon men can aspire to compared to what their forebears in the 19th century could aspire to. Um, I would say that Mormon masculinity because the Mormon, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is part of the larger culture, is currently affected by the trends shaping the United States and Western civilization as a whole, the entire planet. Um, there's more emphasis on nurturing. Um, Mormon men are becoming better parents. Um Um, certainly the men who were willing to write essays for this collection were interested in things like equitable, equitable divisions of labor between spouses, um, respect for, um, women as opposed to putting them on pedestals. And I will also say that there were quite a few contributors to this collection who are gay. Um, uh, there, oh, let's see, there are I've, four, five, quite a few essays in here about uh, gay relationships. Um, and... Uh, people had to be okay with that. I, I told people up front that uh, um, this would not be a homophobic collection. So um, I, I think that's certainly an element of Mormon masculinity that persisted in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints longer than elsewhere has been some homophobia. And I am very happy that um, more and more Mormon men are shedding that really unappealing trait. Now, explain to the audience the importance of priesthood in the households. Priesthood is the power, is the mystical and administrative power in the church. By that, I mean that it can perform mysteries and uh, um, miracles. Uh, it can perform healings. It can perform blessings, but it is also administrative. Uh, men, and they are only men, women cannot hold the priesthood. Only men can hold the priesthood. And in order to be part of the church's administrative apparatus, um, uh, whether at the local level or headquarters in Salt Lake, a man must have the priesthood. And even women who work in the church's administrative divisions, like overseeing the Relief Society or the primary, which is the children's organization, they um, their authority derives 
to them through through the calling they receive from priesthood holders. Um, it's broadly stated, priesthood is simply power within the church. It's the power to act. It's the power to discern God's will. It's the power to make binding decisions. Um, and um, men are expected to administer to their families in their homes through the priesthood. They are expected to use this mystical and administrative power in order to discern God's will for their families in their homes. Now, in 1995, there was a family proclamation. Can you tell the audience about this? The family proclamation is a document that was created in response to um, efforts, especially in Hawaii, to grant legal status to queer relationships, to gay marriage or gay partnerships. And so the church created a document affirming that marriage is an institution that validates relationships between one man and one woman only. Uh, it it uh, Marriage does not include um, relationships between one man and multiple women, and marriage does not comprehend relationships between two men or two women. And it stated that... Um, Oh, I, sh- I wish I had it right in front of me. Um, I know it pretty well, but I don't know that I could quote this part verbatim. Something to the effect that that men, uh, men and husband and wives, men and women must work as equal partners in relationships over which men preside, which I have said many times is a fundamental problem with the church's framing of relationships because you cannot have an equal partnership over which one partner presides. And then after that, the document goes on to um, prophesy dire outcomes for anyone who violates um, this a pattern of family. I, I hope my, my cat is, is quite unhappy. I don't know if you're picking that up. Um, the, the, the yowling or meowing. Okay, good. So she, she apparently, she is not as interested in Mormon marriage as you are Deidre. <laughs> now, 2012, when the world saw Mitt Romney, um, did this represent Mill? Mormonhood, manhood. Yes, actually, in in the wonderful foreword provided by um, Patrick Hugh Mason for for this collection, um, he he argues that um, Mitt Romney is sort of the 
epitome of 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 Mormon manhood. I'm trying to actually. I have my book right in front of me, and I'm trying to, trying to find it. Um, you know, he's he's successful. He's a good father. He uh, is very devoted to his wife. He's attractive. Um, he's respectful. Um, he's ambitious. Um, so yes, Mitt, Mitt Romney is, um, Mitt Romney is a very good example of ideal Mormon masculinity. He's also, um, not entirely, um, a yes man. He follows his conscience as when he was the, um, one of the very few people to, um, vote to impeach Donald Trump in his second election. And whether, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, you can look at the fact that uh, Mitt Romney did not simply fall in line with the party. He followed his own conscience. Um, So yeah, there are many, many people who are happy to have Mormon masculinity represented by Mitt Romney. You know, in the book, there was a statement from the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Tell us about that ruling and how that connects to the Mormon population. So, uh, yes, I start my introduction by quoting Justice Kennedy's ruling in Obergefell about the importance of marriage to... Um, private life. And, and this I can find. So I am going to go ahead and read this. This is a a quote from Anthony Kennedy in Obergefell v. Hodges. No union is more profound than marriage for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death, close quote. So that is very much in line with the Mormon idea of marriage as ennobling um, and um, a, a way that people develop their emotional and spiritual faculties and become better people and and that by doing so they create something that uh, extends into the next life. Now um, tell the audience about this sealing into the temple and the after death. So um, a a temple ceiling, um, Mormon marriage depends on the idea of a, a temple marriage or a temple ceiling, which is a ceremony in which two people are joined, not merely until death parts them, but for all eternity. And it also seals to them the their children and their children's children so that they can maintain familial ties into the next life um 
this is this gets a little bit dicey because things that I grew up being taught were later hedged on um, by subsequent prophets. I always grew up being told that um, if you were married in the temple, if you were sealed in the temple, and you lived a sufficiently righteous life that you would make it to the celestial kingdom to the highest degree of glory in the Mormon afterlife, you would have the opportunity to be as God is now, as God is to our world and to create universes and, and solar systems and, and planets and, and have your own, little human experiment to see who could be, who could go through the whole process. And, um, um, it's, it's related to the idea of eternal progression that, um, we, 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 there is always a new project. There is always something else for us to do. There is always a, uh, there is always more work. Um, Mormonism does grow out of, you know, the Protestant work ethic. There is always more work for, for even for God. Um, God's, God's, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, wait, or maybe it's, maybe, actually, is it, it's been a while, might be in Moses, which is in the Pearl of Great Price. For this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the eternal, the immortality and the eternal life of man. Um so God has a job, um, and the way human beings get promoted to where they can do the same job is for, is by proving themselves worthy within the bounds of a temple ceiling. Now, modern marriage, why is it important to discuss what's going on today during these times? Relationships in general are in flux. Um, marriage is evolving. Um, you know, I, I just quoted from Obergefell the the decision. Um, was it twenty fifteen twenty four? Twenty fifteen. So twenty fifteen is when gay marriage was legalized throughout the country, um, validating qu- quite a few, giving giving um, federal status to marriages that had been performed in states, um, and then we've had the recent decision from the Supreme Court this year overturning Roe v. Wade. And as many people know, Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurrence that he thinks Obergefell was wrongly decided and needs to be revisited. Um, People are really considering what marriage means. One of the uh, works I read as research for this was something called Against Marriage by a woman named Claire, what was her last name? 
Chambers, Claire Chambers Against Marriage, an Egalitarian Defense of the Marriage-Free State, October University Press, 2017. She asks why the state should be involved at all in recognizing intimate relationships. Um, And that actually has been, um, she does it from the left, but there are people who've done the same thing from the right, saying that um, the state should have no business in recognizing relationships. It's it's a way to avoid... um, on the left, it's a way to make things more egalitarian, and on the right, it's a way to avoid giving legal status to gay marriage. Um, there's the women's movement and feminism that is um, su- arguing that gender roles trap people in patterns of behavior that don't promote their highest happiness, and they should be free to violate them. Um, You know, feminism actually argues that men should be allowed to be stay at home dads. Um, And there, there is, there are um, two essays in the collection by men who have been stay at home dads. Um, I think that for scholars in general to have an accurate view of the landscape of relationships, they need to know something about Mormons who place so much emphasis on marriage. And I produced the book with several different um, objectives in mind. One, I hoped it would just be entertaining. I, I, I hoped um, readers would simply find the essays interesting. Um, I have a PhD in English literature with an emphasis in memoir, autobiography, and the personal essay. And I really enjoy reading first person, um, I'm making air quotes right now. True, true essay. You know, it's it's difficult to tell the truth, but I value the effort to to do it. Um, I like first person accounts of a person's struggles with their own lives. Beyond that, I hoped that the book could be. Um, a course assignment in classes in, say, um, sociology of religion um, for undergrads, um, Mormon studies, um, um, uh, marriage and family counseling. But I also hoped it would be of use to scholars who could read it and understand something about what Mormon marriage means, um, you know, for people who are interested in, in that, in that sort of work. Um, you know, that's why, that's why the introduction, which of course is optional. Um, but the introduction that I wrote is scholarly and, um, draws on scholarly sources so that it, it could be useful in that way. Now there's a question I have from the book. Um, you indicated that foregoing marriage hurts women more than than men. Well, that that uh, that's in the introduction, and I was talking historically 
Um, I, I'm not sure that that's true anymore. In fact, there are studies that show that that single women um, are, are happier in some regards than married women, and they are certainly happier than um, single men. But historically, when women had fewer options for um, labor and earned far less, um, not getting married, being an old maid a hundred years ago um, was liable to sentence a woman to poverty in a way it wouldn't now. That is still true if a woman has children. Uh, Single women fall, single mothers, single mothers fall into poverty more often than any other group of people. So single women who don't, I mean, you know, if a woman never gets married and she has no children, she can be fine. That's the category I'm in. But women who have children and are not married, that is definitely going to hurt them. They, um, trying to provide for a family on a single income and moreover on a woman's income is really, really difficult. In, in your introduction, you also talked about powerful men versus ordinary men. Explain that to us. Well, the example that I, I used was um, Henry VIII and um, the way that his concern, his desire for a particular type of marriage, which is one that gave him a son, had ramifications for the whole world. Um, he went through six wives in his quest to get a, a, a son and to have um, the right kind of docile queen he wanted at his side. And so we are aware of his marital history in ways we wouldn't be of just some ordinary guy. Um, uh um, I mean, the, the history of marriage is actually really interesting. And two books that I really enjoyed that I read for both books and would recommend to anyone who wants to read more on this topic are um, Marriage, a History by Stephanie Kuntz and The Marriage Go-Round by um, Andrew Churlin. Um, you know, marriage... Traditional marriage is not all that traditional. It's a very new invention. Um, Ordinary people had to marry, uh, at least in European culture, American culture, because it just was too hard to survive, you know, even to eat and have shelter unless you had a partner and unless you had the, you know, labor provided by having children. Um, People who are wealthy have more means to arrange marriage to their satisfaction and to leave them when they are unsatisfying for whatever reason. Um, You know, ordinary people just do the best they can in unpleasant and unhappy circumstances. 
Now, tell us about the Equal Rights Amendment. How did that change or influence the view of marriage? Well, you know, it it, it still hasn't passed. Um, uh, and it's been around. Um, how long is, when, when was the ERA? It was... Um, the Equal Rights Amendment was first written... I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. Was in oh about a hundred years ago, 1923. Um, um, but it, you know, uh, would have outlawed uh, discrimination based on sex. Um, I do talk about it in my introduction because in the seventies, for whatever reason, the church decided that the ERA was a huge threat to its existence and um, encouraged members to fight its ratification. Um, People predicted that if the ERA was ratified that we would that gay people would be able to get married there would be women in the military there would be unisex bathrooms blah 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 all these horrible horrible terrifying dire consequences that have all come to pass even without the era um being part of the constitution um so you know i i it's it's more the effort to pass the ERA than uh, than its successful passage. Um, it it made women realize that um, equality was was possible, and it made men think about what it would cost them if women were equal. Um, uh, one of the books I relied on for my understanding of that is um, The Hearts of Men by um, Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, she discusses, she actually looks a lot at Playboy. She says that men's men's liberation was a thing before women's liberation was. And it was, it was Playboy that really started that. Um, uh, the post-war cult of family, many, many people found it stultifying. Men really hated it. Men really hated having to go to work and earn a lot of money for women, uh, for a family. And, waiting, hated waiting until they got married to have sex. And, you know, Playboy came along and said they didn't have to do that. They could, they could, um, have a nice home and, and be single and, um, didn't have to tie themselves down to one woman. And feminists were like, yes, this is awesome. This is what we've been saying. You know, gender roles limit both genders. Um, the anti-feminists said, if you don't, trap a man and marry him. He will never take care of you. So you have to get married. In other words, um, as, as Aaron Reich put it, men, men were reluctant participants in marriage and women were lucky to get them. Um, 
whereas, you know, people more interested in gender equality said, we have other models, we have other ways of, of approaching this. And ultimately, what it came down to is that, um, in order for equality to happen, men really would have had to give up their um, authority over women, and and a lot of them just weren't really to willing to do that. Um, however heavy the burdens of masculinity were, they came with significant benefits, and a lot of men decided they just wanted to go ahead and keep those. They would pay the price. They would pay the price of um, being the, the, the difficulty and stress of being the head of a household because they liked the prestige and power it conferred. Now, you uh, brought to our attention a 1970s textbook that gave some good advice. Can you tell us about that? I thought that was a, a key in understanding the culture oh i didn't think that was good advice i quoted that because i thought it was terrible advice actually uh this this uh a class i took in the 1980s at the institute of religion at the university of arizona um um on it was called achieving a celestial marriage and it said um, this is a quote from uh, Bruce R. McConkie, who was a general authority in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think. Um, the most important thing that any member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ever does in the world are, one, to marry the right person in the right place by the right authority, and two, to keep the covenants made in connection with this holy and perfect order of matrimony, thus assuring the obedient persons of an inheritance of exaltation in the celestial kingdom. And the reason I thought this was bad advice is because the, the commit, the suggestion, the assertion that the most important thing any member of the church does is marry the right person had nothing to do with whether or not this person was compatible in terms of interest, temperament, libido, ambitions, anything, um, that instead it was just a reference to righteousness. Um, and then I, this is also a quote from Bruce McConkie. The right person is someone for whom the natural and wholesome and normal affection that should exist does exist. It is the person who is living so that he or she can go to the temple of God and make the covenants that we make there. So, um, Couple that with statements from Spencer Kimball that um, this this is a statement so distressing that that caused so much grief that uh, two of the contributors quote this in their essays. Almost any and here it is. Almost any good man and any good woman can have happiness in a successful marriage if both are willing to pay the price, which is to love the Lord more than their own lives and then love each other more than their own lives, working together in total harmony with the gospel program as their basic structure. So, you know, basically any two people can have a great marriage, regardless of whether or not they even like each other, if they are just perfectly righteous. Um, and that 
that unrealistic advice um, caused a lot of grief. Um, but, but can't we find examples where that advice did create wholesome family and stable lives? I personally do not know any people who uh, love love the Lord more than their own lives and love their partners more than themselves while still working in perfect harmony with the gospel. So I certainly think that um, if you prioritize another's happiness over your own, as long as that's mutual, if it's only one person doing it, um, if, for instance, only the wife prioritizes her husband's happiness over her own, or if, you know, to take gender out of it and, you know, in a queer relationship, if only one spouse prioritizes their spouse's happiness over their own, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, if they both do it, that's great. Um, and if they both have, um, if they both want, if, if they share ethics and um, really want to make the world a better place and they start at home, yes, I think that's probably a way that, that many people achieve successful relationships and a great deal of personal happiness. But one of the things I discovered through this project is that's rare. That That's so important because happy, well-constructed families of all groups, they are in decline. So we're looking for some solutions to that. Now, what is the overall message you would like to leave your reader with once they finish this book? Uh <laughs> that Latter-day Saints are not a monolith, um, that they are uh, unique individuals. And um, while they are shaped by their religion, they are also shaped by the culture that religion exists in. And um, that that there there frankly are many ways of achieving happiness. Um, uh, um, this is one reason it was very important to me that um, there are the the essays cover a broad range, as well as broad. <laughs> okay, I just said they're not monolith. Mormon, uh, you know, the Mormon Church is not monolithic, and and yet there are certain dominant traits. Most of the contributors are white. Um, uh, one is black, one is Native American, but they don't discuss race. Um, most of the contributors are straight. Um, and, and yet not all of them are. And there are happy marriages among couples in which one of them has left the church. Um, there are happy queer relationships and there are marriages between faithful, devout Latter-day Saints that face significant struggles. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there are a variety of relationships and, um, 
there's there's a plenty of wiggle room there's uh if 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 you're looking for wiggle room if you're looking for ways to have um a more unique and tailored relationship there is space for you to do that if you know where to look. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you'll be working on? I have a few different th- I'm I'm actually I'm thinking of doing something that it's it's still very inchoate. Um maybe something on on uh what is involved in leaving the church. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you.